So I was thinking about doing a, um, uh, a sort of a pre-read of like some Bigfoot erotica stuff, and I was in my car smoking a cigar, reading Bigfoot erotica, and then you realized the situation that you were in and questioned it, your life. Pretty much, I was like, "Why am I? Um, what wrong turns have I gotten to <laughs> that that it, on a Tuesday morning I am smoking my first cigar, um, reading Bigfoot erotica?" in preparation for a supposedly wonky podcast. Anyway, oh my God, are we recording? Oh, never mind. All right, so (laughs) greetings, dear listeners. Wow, he actually fooled me for that one. (laughs) I wasn't sure if... Okay. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast. Um, I'm here with my uh, Sancho Panza, Jack Butler. Uh, Hello, Jack. How are you? I'm just helping you tilt windmills. Tilt at windmills. So, um... Uh, this week's episode of the Remnant podcast is uh, um, brought to you by Crushing Morosity and Schadenfreude. We'll Schadenfreude hit- is a past sponsor of the Remnant. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> it, is, it, is it is almost a, a muse of, <laughs> of the Remnant. You know, because if, if we can't have nice things, we can at least take pleasure in the lack of other people having nice things. So uh, we have we have no guest today. We are. I'm going to have one more episode that we're going to record later this week with the, I was going to say inestimable, inestimable, uh, Sonny Bunch, but let's, let's be honest with ourselves. He's estimable. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, uh, we're going to do sort of a pop culture year in review. Um, but we were also, Jack and I were talking before the, um, before we went live that we might want to do a sort of greatest moments in remnant, uh, of, of the remnant of the last year. We were trying to figure out what those moments would be. And so if listeners have suggestions for, like, audio clips that we could pull out or, uh, you know, I don't know, um, recurring catchphrases for Remnant Bingo, uh, we're open to that. Use your imagination. I mean, I, I guess one of them, and I don't even know if it was in 2018, would be the first mention of Bigfoot erotica. Right? It wasn't in 2018, but it may have That's been within the past year. Right, right. So it depends what what calendar, what year you're talking about, right? Uh, well, I live my life in Remnant years, so... <laughs> When when did this podcast launch? Uh, I believe the first episode was released on October 1st, 2017. Was it really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a sign of some, of my decision tree going awry that I am so widely associated with Bigfoot erotica when I merely brought it up, I believe with Andy Ferguson, simply to point out that there are niche markets for all sorts of things, right? Wasn't that the context of it? Yeah, I think so. You the the sentence when something like uh you know, there's you can search on Amazon for and there's a pause and the first thing that comes into your head is Bigfoot erotica. And <laughs> as as your example of obscure internet-based passions. So, one peeve I have and I, I and I, I and again I well I have several peeves I'm I'm I'm, I'm a, none of them are pets though why would you keep a peeve as a pet that's exactly right um, I uh, um, first of all I am not a major connoisseur of Bigfoot erotica that is I leave to the member of Congress from Virginia um, <laughs> nor have I written any Bigfoot erotica um, under your own name but I feel like I have to rise to the defense of Bigfoot erotica from time to time because people keep referring to it as Bigfoot porn. And there's a difference between erotica and porn, which we've discussed before on on this podcast. And, you know, uh, erotica is supposed to be sensual and arouse um, uh, 
sexual desires in a literary fashion while pornography is just skipping to the punchline as it were um and these are these are these are important distinctions to somebody i think i don't know i just it just every now and then people are like well you're really into bigfoot porn and i was like i'm not even into bigfoot erotica you know but i'm certainly not into bigfoot porn you know uh i i was i don't know when i was going to mention this but i might as well now um you're quitting no (laughs) (laughs) um not yet uh bigfoot has a is an important character in the history of our of our relationship. When you came to Hillsdale to teach that journalism class, yeah, the you had us write you want uh, a column, mm-hmm. and you had told us that your your shorthand writing advice was either to write uh, write well about something weird or write weird or write what was it? You yeah, know, I wanted you to write. I wanted you to write seriously about something weird or weirdly about something serious. Yes, or something normal, right? So I chose to write seriously about something weird, and I wrote about Bigfoot. Oh, uh, about a guy who claimed to have killed a Bigfoot uh, and was going to display the carcass to the world to prove that Bigfoot exists or existed. I don't know. Oh. It would have killed him. It'd sort of be beside the point. Although, as an aside, I would definitely. If if I slayed a kraken by my own hand, I would definitely eat it. That would be delicious. Is there supposed to be some magical properties from eating a kraken? No, I just like if you kill a kraken, of course you're gonna eat it. I would I would eat I would I would definitely want that. And there'd would, be calamari for days. I would have it stuffed, mounted, or something. It'd uh, be very large, I suppose. I yeah, mean, I mean, where were you, where are you gonna put that? These things grow really large. There are museums that would pay money for it. Yeah, well, I'd eat it instead. Yeah. Well, the Midgard serpent you couldn't eat, right? Because the Midgard serpent actually spans the entire, I believe, the entire planet. And yeah, there's the there's a uh, a folk tale in Norse mythology about this. Because uh, I, I, I know I'm bringing up the Midgard serpent. Yeah, no, no. I mean, like a specific one where Thor and Loki like are challenged by this this god to do three things, and it turns out that one of them, I can't remember what exactly the the specific role, but it was the Midgard serpent in disguise, and they were it was they were. I think Thor, Thor was supposed to wrestle it, uh-huh. and he lost. And he was like, "I've never lost to anyone." And then the the trickster deity reveals, "Oh, it was actually the Midgard serpent." So, and then he also is supposed to. He also loses this drinking contest, and it turns out that it's the ocean, and then not just some pitcher of of beer that he's drinking. Um, I'm a um, uh, I was a huge Norse mythology geek when I was a kid and I always liked Norse mythology better than Roman or Greek mythology. I always thought it was better um, or more interesting. But, and so it always bothers me that, that Roman mythology gets better play. Um, um, And I think it's, I mean, it's for understandable reasons, but. um, Greco-Roman mythology doesn't even have an eschatology. They they don't, the world doesn't, there is no single end of the world. It's just sort of a cyclical thing. Whereas Norse mythology has Ragnarok where we all fall into the Gnungi gap, I believe. Um, and as Valhalla, and as, I mean, that's good stuff. I do think that the, um, and I don't want to get too much into the pop culture stuff, but the uh, the Marvel Thor franchise is a hate crime against Norse <laughs> mythology now, because basically they're just an alien race with weird technology. Um, and uh, that bothers me a great deal. Not that it's not more, I guess, plausible, right? <laughs> but um, it still it just bothers me. Uh, so that, we started. I mentioned Bigfoot, and that's the that's the so Bigfoot. 
It's it's so it's funny that you that you mentioned Bigfoot erotica because I maybe I maybe I was the one who sort of planted this in your head. You might have you might have incepted it. Yeah, uh, but although I talked about Bigfoot being killed, so I don't know how that would lead to Bigfoot erotica. Although I'm sure there are varieties of it in which, well, I don't. <laughs> never mind. It seems to me that if you want to prove that Bigfoot exists, first of all, you should want to capture him alive, right? Because then yeah. you can claim that you had it wasn't like a plastic surgery modified like gorilla or something like that. Um, but actually, that reminds me. Have I told you my great peeve about King Kong? Uh, well, there are surely many. Uh... Yeah, so among among them, um, first of all, the reason why King Kong doesn't work as a movie anymore and why they had to... The sort... 30s one? Well, the, no. Oh, the you 30s... mean subsequent adaptations. Yeah, is because I see. our attitudes towards gorillas have changed and no one wants to see a gorilla get hurt. No one really minds to see, like, dinosaurs get hurt that much. Um, Speak for yourself. But, um, uh, well, let me put a pin in that because I have a peeve about that too. Um, in, um, so many peeves. The but, peeve off. But when they, made the, um, <laughs> when they made the remake with Jack Black, right? Yeah. It's, so it's the same problem that the original has. This is, this is my, my primary peeve, right? So let's just say this has re- really happened, right? And some people go to an island and they discover there's a really large gorilla. But there are also dinosaurs. Oh right? yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> so they, I've read this somewhere. Yeah, from so you. they, you know, they they bring, they come back and they're like, yeah, yeah, we killed all the dinosaurs, but <laughs> we brought back the big ape because that's the big news, right? I mean, it's like the, finding dinosaurs would be at least equal news to finding an exceptionally large gorilla. Yeah, particularly the one, the gorilla from the original King Kong isn't that big. Yeah. Right? They've now made him super big because he's got to fight Godzilla in like 2020 <laughs> in the next movie. Um, so he's just getting bigger and bigger and he's also not dying because no one wants to see a gorilla die. But like in the Jack Black remake, there are velociraptor kind of dinosaurs. There are all sorts of dinosaurs and no one cares. No one thinks it's interesting. All that's interesting is to capture the big gorilla. And that just makes no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, again, by all means, that would be maybe one of the things you brought back. Or like <laughs> about, but wouldn't you also be kind of excited to show the world that you found a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Yeah, maybe. Um, so my let's have let's continue our peeve off here. My peeve about King Kong is that, and I read this article years ago. I doubt I could find it again, but it was it was a fascinating sort of biological uh, treatise on why giant monsters of that nature just wouldn't work like they, they're especially just bigger versions of things we already know exist uh like the gorillas exist at the portions they do uh, as we know them in part because like, if you make it them any bigger than they just they won't be able to walk without like right. breaking their knees it's like bugs can't be scaled to giant size yeah they don't work the same way uh yeah and and there's i think is this article i read uh, posited, I think the movie was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, where a, a sort of giant squid that I would eat, uh, if I killed it, attacks San Francisco and ends up sort of trying to bring down, it surfaces, tries to bring down the Bay Bridge. But then for the, the last half of the movie, or the last third of the movie, it just kind of stands still. And the, like, you, you modern viewer, you might think, oh, this is obviously they ran out of budget or ran beyond their technical capabilities. But the article actually posited that, no, this is actually the most accurate depiction because something of that size that uh, vacated its normal habitat then tried to do something extremely physically difficult would probably just – it probably had like an aneurysm or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, makes sense. Makes so it was just there and then they they're waiting for the military to put it out of its misery. 
Um, so, oh, the thing I asked you to put a pin in, I watched on the cruise, the National Review cruise, the the latest Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World. Fallen Kingdom. Is that what it's called? Is That's the sequel that came out this year. Yeah, yeah. Did the, does the island blow up? Yes. Okay, I, I, have, I have not seen that one. I saw the one immediately before it. Okay, so spoiler alert. Well, I already it's, gave one. Well, no, no, but that's like in the it's like that's the opening scenes is them having this uh, heady debate about whether or not to save the dinosaurs of of this island because of a volcano. Or no, because they're not even they're they're not even really dinosaurs. They're just like genetically they're genetic monstrosities. Well, be that as it may, <laughs> um, that's what the opening is: is this debate about whether or not they should save the dinosaur 2.0s, ersatz dinosaurs, whatever you are comfortable calling them. Uh-huh. Um, faux dinosaurs. Faux dinosaurs. Uh, dinosaur mania. Not quite dinosaurs, but the next best thing, which is a throwback to commercials for a thing called Beetlemania that you never saw. Um, are you saying that I'm not familiar with Beetlemania? No, but you're not familiar with the commercials that were on in the 1970s for it that ran in New York City every four minutes. Wait, why were there commercials about Beatlemania? There was a show on Broadway called Beatlemania. Oh, oh, okay. Where it was a tribute band that played Beatles stuff, and and the tagline was something like, we'll find the YouTube video, Beatlemania, um, the next best thing to the real thing, or something like that. And it was on constantly. Well, I'm I'm deeply offended by it, just on the face of it. So okay, I'm... so... Um, Dinosaurs. Dinos- so, first of all, spoiler alert, it's incredibly stupid movie. Even measured on the scale, you know, even if you're allowing for all the rules of the fifth movie in a giant CG franchise, I right? I think it's the s- sixth. Fine. No, it is the fifth. You're right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's the fifth. And um, uh, and it's the exact same sort of moral themes. Capitalists are bad. Obviously, the first thing the capitalists want to do with this new biotech. Thing is make them into weapons again, <laughs> right? And so the whole thing is about how uh, this philanth- again, spoiler alert, this philanthropist guy turns out not to be a philanthropist, but he actually has sold his soul to international weapons dealers, and they're going to turn these things into killing machines for profit because that's you know really you know that's what all capitalists their first go to thing is to come up with new forms of weapons, right? And yep. Um, can confirm. And then and then we're all first of all they actually make you at the, at the towards the beginning of the movie when the island blows up they make you weep for the for the di- lots of dinosaurs die and you watch them drown and they make sort of crying dog sounds and it's like very manipulative. But then at the end we're all supposed to cheer that there are just they let loose the dinosaurs. Like the good guys release dinosaurs into the general earth population <laughs> and then they have these establishment shots all over the place of like a tyrannosaurus rex walking through a zoo not in a zoo but like going up to the lion enclosure and yelling at the lions the symbolism being the new king of beasts is here right and they have pterodactyls just flying over the western skyline and they have um some giant friggin you know paleolithic uh, crocodile thing coming up behind surfers and we're all supposed nice. to be like fine with this <laughs> like like the NRA, you know, I mean, like the idea that there wouldn't be dudes out there shooting and killing these things instantaneously. We're all, oh, yay, the Velociraptor is just allowed to, like, roam suburbia. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very, very weird, morally conflicted, dumb, dumb, dumb movie. But 
It's also a, a a change from even the immediate predecessor of that movie because the the horror of that is when all of the the dinosaurs escape um, while people are still on the island, while the park has right. been opened. And all these people are murdered or killed by them, right? Yeah. And what else I've never understood, and this is a minor thing, but like they've established for like the last two of these movies that the that there are dinosaurs in the oceans already. So like why would we think that these dinosaurs would stay close to the island to begin with? Why wouldn't they just like like head off and go eat blue whales off the coast of Japan or something like that? What do you mean that there are dinosaurs already in the ocean? There were some uh, Jurassic Park created swimming dinosaurs. Yeah, the the one that's in their sea world. Oh yeah, there's the one that's in the the previous movie. Yeah, and there's one and there are a couple in this. And just like no one found this problematic. I mean, like it's not like we thought it was okay. We, we thought we had to put the Tyrannosaurus Rex behind bars, behind a cage, right, to protect humans. But to have this like five hundred foot long giant thing just swimming freely out in the ocean, no one really, no one ever says, you know, maybe we should rethink this. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I think Cthulhu would take care of those things. Yeah, okay. I mean, he can't. He can't stomach a competitor, um, or can't. He could stomach as in consume a competitor, but he just doesn't feel like dealing with them. All right. So I fear we've lost an enormous number of listeners by now. Um, uh, so well, it is the remnant it after is, all. That's true. So we should probably switch to some something more weighty. Um, now that we've warmed everyone up. Yeah, exactly. Um, I t- uh, or cooled everyone off. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the Weekly Standard in part because anything that I can say publicly – has already been said better by other people. I think David Brooks's column pretty much got it right. Um, if you listen to the latest commentary podcast, they do they break format and do this weird Q and A where they just ask uh, John about the the standard, how it was founded, what its role was. It's very good, very informative about the role of conservative and intellectual magazines in America, and he covers all the bases. All I'll say is that you know Steve Hayes is a very good friend of mine. I think that. I was I was working in the same building as the Standard when the Standard was founded. Uh, my wife had was was not working for the Standard, but she was working down the hall from the Standard and is very close friends with those people. A lot of those people have been very close friends of mine for for over twenty years now. I think they have some of the best writers of my generation. Um, I mean, Andy Ferguson, I think David Brooks is right, is probably the best political writer of the last twenty five years. Chris Caldwell is an amazing intellect and an amazing writer. Um, and you can go down a long list. There are a lot of really talented people there. And they closed this thing for dumb reasons. And it is not because the magazine was anti-Trump. The, and we'll get to the unseemliness of the, of the, of MAGA world gloating about the demise of the standard in a second. But it wasn't killed because it was anti-Trump. It was killed because, um, Phil Anschutz and Ryan McKibben, the guy who runs Clarity Media, which is owned by Phil Anschutz, which owns owned the Weekly Standard, they care more about the Examiner, and they didn't like having this independent thing in their portfolio at a certain point. I I think honestly, I, I've met Phil Anschutz. It's not like I'm a friend of his, but I know him a little bit. I think he was just really, really poorly served by by McKibben and the people who work under him and the way that they sold all these ideas to Anschutz. And basically what they did is they, as John puts it, you know, they murdered the standard. And 
and then they decided to um, harvest its organs, in effect. And so they're going to take the subscriber list for the Weekly Standard and fulfill their legal obligations to subscribers by sending them the this new revamped examiner instead. And nor and so and that's you know, and they have every right to do that, but. The talk out there, oh, you know, you got you conservatives say you like the free market, but not when you know it's a business decision to close down a magazine. That's not what happened. There were people who wanted to buy the standard, and the the clarity people basically said they weren't interested in selling it. Which, at least if you talk to some of the standard people, if you talk to Pod and others, that was a betrayal of the promise, which was that if if Anschutz ever got tired of of funding the standard. He would help them find another owner. Instead, they decided they wanted to cannibalize it and invest in the examiner. It's also not and, – and so this idea that it was a business decision, keep in mind that the examiner loses a lot more money than the Weekly Standard did. So the idea that somehow they, they wanted to cut their losses because the examiner was bleeding money is just not true. They just care more about the examiner and they have every right to do so. But it's also not true that, you know um, – it was killed because it was anti-Trump. You know, Seth Mandel, who's great and good guy, and he's going to be the editor of the new uh, Examiner magazine, he, it's not like he wears a MAGA hat. He's very critical of Trump. They have lots of people at the Examiner who are critical of Trump. I don't think Phil Anschutz is a huge fan of Donald Trump. And so so much of the, the cheering that has been going on is just this lazy, kind of opportunistic, take the headline and 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 thump your chest about something that you don't really understand and don't care to understand because all you're trying to do is score cheap Twitter battle points. It's what it's all about, man. It is what it's all about. And so, I know, it's 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 that's a, probably a good segue to talk about just the effusion of horribleness that has come out in the last what 48 hours in from the sort of the MAGA crowd, you have Julie Kelly, who writes for American Greatness, who seems to have, as far as I can tell, lost her mind, who, you know, has attacked me plenty of times. I don't read it. You know, people tweeted at me and I don't read, you know, I don't hit the link. But she, uh, she's crapping all over David French and his wife, uh, claiming that they are exploiting their adopted child to score points against Donald Trump, which is just nonsense. They're claiming that, you know, she's belittling Nancy French, David's wife's story about how she was sexually molested when she was 12 years old and she characterizes it as Nancy French fooling around with a preacher and uh, it's just this bilious nastiness and I, I don't and then you have this you know this Emerald Robinson Remera who is pelting you know rocks at me and at National Review and at AEI with just this just constant barrage of just stupid, nonsensical conspiracy theory and McCarthyite, you know, innuendo. Um, they're all gloating over the weekly standard. They're all gloating over people losing their jobs. They're all and, you know, it's 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 as if someone declared since they're going to call us deplorable, we might as well actually be deplorable people. And I don't get it. I mean, why? And, you know, and even and not all of them have not all of the MAGA people are horrible people. But I don't I've never thought that. But even the people who don't themselves traffic in just this nasty nonsense, they feel no moral obligation to call out their fellow contributors to American greatness who do this stuff. They, have no, they feel no obligation to tell their own side to cool it. 
Um, all they do is like retweet other people's garbage. And speaking of retweeting garbage, uh, this morning Rand Paul, who I think is one of the most duplicitous and and scheming <laughs> public figures in American life, tweeted out uh, his celebration of the Weekly Standard's demise, saying. Uh, good riddance to, or something like that, good riddance to fake conservatives and warmongers. And then he linked to this, you know, ridiculously dumb piece by Chris Buzkirk um, at American Greatness, which entirely rewrites the history of conservatism in America and shows he has a thumbless grasp about how any of these things work and instead is claiming that a new, more authentic conservatism is being built in the image of the American founders in accordance with Donald Trump, which is just insane, right? It's like this Julie Kelly telling me that never Trumpers don't have, uh, um, have never had much uh, attachment to the truth. You cannot claim to be a champion of truth-telling while at the same time champion, championing everything that Donald Trump says and does. Donald Trump lies more about big things and small things, petty things and important things, than any public figure in our lifetimes. And that includes people like Bill Clinton, who was an unbelievable liar. And so I'm kind of, I'm just, you know, I feel, I feel more remnanty <laughs> than I have in a very long time because, you know, it's one thing for people to traffic in, in ideas that I profoundly disagree with. It is another thing for people to think that they can actually be, that it's a good thing to be a horrible person and say horrible things so long as you're doing it for in defense of you know that that moral exemplar Donald Trump I mean it's just it's grotesque and um and I'm just hoping that it's a fever that burns itself out but uh that's 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 where my mood is today um I bet you know there are a lot of listeners wish we had stayed on on King Kong it's not enough that uh, we succeed. Cats must also fail. Exactly. So we asked people on Twitter, um, on the Twitters, what we should uh, talk about. And some people want me to talk about Julie Kelly. I think I checked that box. Yep. Uh, wanted me to talk about the standard. Check that box. One guy wants me to talk about Scotch, criminal reform, and German philosophers. I am to varying degrees in favor of two out of three of those things. <laughs> um, no, it was interesting. You know, I did that really weird arguably dumb g-file in response to the nr plus readers requests and i liked a lot of the topics that people came up with but the guy who um asked me to write about the baleful influence of german philosophy in america he sent me an essay gosh now i'm forgetting the guy's name do you remember no and Santiana? i was that it oh oh the, the yeah i think there was yeah i think i thought you were asking the name of the person who suggested the question no 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 but yeah and so there's, it was and i wish i'd seen that essay by santana before it was really actually very useful and would have come in handy for two out of the three of my last books but one of the points that santana makes in that essay is that that nationalism is as a philosophical idea that emerges essentially out of germany often took the form as a of a kind of a rationalization of a kind of racial consciousness that they didn't have the science of racial, racial quote-unquote racial science for yet, which is a point I think I do make somewhere in Suicide of the West. You know, if you read, 
Johann Fick's notes, uh, you know, Address to the Nation or whatever, Address to the German Nation, I think it's called. It's a series of speeches. He gave. Yeah, I think that stuff got all cut out. Did it get cut out? Most, for the most part. Um, all, all of your Johann hatred. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so Johann Fick, he was one of the two most one of the two or three most important founders of German nationalism. One of the two or three most important Johans as well. Yeah, that's right, because the other one was <laughs> Johann Herder, and uh, um, and uh, and it's weird. You read Fix, uh, and maybe it's Fichte, Fichte. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, Fichthulu. Um, but he uh, he talks about the German people as this distinct, pure people, right? And it's all of this stuff that feels really eugenic-y and, and racial science-y, but it's actually not there. It's, it's, he bases it in German language, which he claims was uh, unpolluted by the, uh, by the Mediterranean filth of the Romantic uh, languages in the Roman Empire. And so it was still pure and rooted to soil and all that kind of stuff. And what's sort of fascinating to me about it is that you could see how if that argument appealed to so many Germans before there was a notion of, of real racial science, you can see how 50 or 100 years later when, when the Galtons and all those guys start coming up with actual – the sort of science of eugenics, why it would just so perfectly sort of mesh in because they already had these categories of thought. Aren't you uh, – so this reminds me actually of what um... – Remember that that brouhaha about the Enlightenment that happened over the well? It wasn't like a nationwide uh, thing, but it, like among a couple it's sports bars and taverns across <laughs> yeah. this country. <laughs> uh, and and uh, some guy at Slate uh, argued that racism, yeah, he that racism was an Enlightenment thing. Is that kind of what you're saying here? Because there was ra- you're saying that racial science was a new thing, and that it sort of needed that Germany needed that to like take the next step to. This, the sort of Nazification of the of of Germany a, a little bit like like again I think I, I did not join the pile on of of Bowie on all that I wrote a piece for the magazine sort of letting him off the hook I think it was for the magazine maybe it was just for the site it um, was the magazine uh, letting him off you know the hook a little bit for that and he's because he's in part right that it was around the time of the Enlightenment that you get the first signs of these sorts of ideas right James Caesar wrote a great book about this uh was it reinventing america i can't I, i'll i'll butter it but i mean uh gosh what was it called it'll come to me um did you say butter it uh-huh like you flub mean, it like, butcher it yeah I, both work for me i don't know <laughs> um I've, I've used butter that way before i've i've is this a new is this a new yorker thing like waiting online for something i, I don't know it could be i i think i might have gotten it from my friend scott mclucas who's not a um New Yorker at all. Um, but, um, but anyway, so Bowie kind of has a point, but part of his, part of the problem with Bowie's point is, is that he was treating the enlightenment in the, in the pinker fashion as all one thing, right? There were a lot of bad ideas that came out of the enlightenment. Um, I argued in my first book that you can draw a pretty, pretty straight line from latter stage French, latter, latter stages of the French revolution to both, um, certainly communism, um, and Bolshevism, but also to Italian fascism. But the other problem I had with, with the Bowie argument about, about, about racism was that, yeah, the concept of racism sort of comes out of the 
era of the Enlightenment and the, the scientific revolution, if you want to call it that, and beyond. But the reality of bigotry towards others is much, much, much older, right? I mean, there's there's that stuff in the Bible, you know, about nations and peoples disliking other peoples. There's that great scene in um, The Man Who Would Be King where every village they go to that Sean Connery and Michael Caine liberate, the locals liberate, but they conquer. Uh, <laughs> uh, You're just, that's a neocon Freudian slip. Yeah, well, it's a little both because they're getting, you know, anyway, so... But the local villagers always complain about the villagers upriver because it's always the villagers upriver who are peeing in the river. <laughs> uh. <laughs> them, and that, but it goes all the way up the river. Um, people have, you know, it's – I could almost write a book about this, right? People are wired to distrust the other. Um, we know this very, very well. And so th- this sort of gets to this rectification of the names thing, right? It is all fine and dandy to say that the the concept of racism as a distinct phenomenon gets emerges after the Enlightenment or because of the Enlightenment and all of that kind of stuff. But the 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 pheno- but the just because you came up with a name for the concept doesn't mean that what that concept is describing didn't exist literally for millions of years. For example, you know, let's say the story about Newton getting hit on the head with the apple is true, and he invents the concept or discovers the concept of gravity. Gravity existed before Newton. Mm, Fake news. (laughs) I don't believe you. And the same thing is true about things like racism. And so it's fine to point to some of these, these intellectual trends that come out of the Enlightenment and say look, the Enlightenment wasn't all good because the Enlightenment wasn't all good. You know, I mean, that's why that's where I agree with Deneen on some of that stuff. There was bad stuff that came out of the Enlightenment. But on net, we also got penicillin and democracy and or 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 sustainable democracy and prosperity and Bigfoot erotica, Bigfoot erotica and stuffed crust pizza and lots and lots of good things. And to say that I mean, and that's why the sort of the left wing critique of this Enlightenment stuff so mirrors the right wing critique of the Enlightenment stuff because there is this notion that somehow if you go spelunking through the past, you will find a better era where the things that you don't like don't exist, which is a very Rousseauian idea, and it is what social scientists call. Garbage. Um, <laughs> is that a technical term? It is a technical term. You know, sometimes I got to drop the technical stuff here. All right. So, other questions that came in through Twitter. Well, I think this is a great segue for you to rant about Woodrow Wilson, which someone explicitly asked you to do. Oh, they did. Okay. If you want to do it, if you don't want to like take up that burden again, because I know you. you well, of, have I ever actually done the rant? Well, no. I mean, you just you you. you I reference ca- it. Yeah, but you castigated. I mean, you've you've been ranting about Woodrow Wilson for years. Right, but on the podcast, have I ever actually done the anti-Woodrow Wilson thing? Uh, only only in asides talking about something else. There's never been a, like... Well, we should do a whole podcast on Wilson. Uh, maybe get uh, uh, your old professor, um, not Petrillo, uh, what's his Pistrito. name? Pistrito. or uh, or Hayward in here and just just rain fire down on his racist ass. But um, the short, <coughs> my short list, okay. Most racist president of the 20th century. Resegregated 
uh, the federal bureaucracy in Washington. He and his administration invented the practice of including photos with job applications so that if you couldn't tell from someone's name, you could tell if they were black so they wouldn't get a job. The Dixiecrats hoped that he was going to uh, bring back the more robust forms of Jim Crow um, and, and for the entire country. And he failed to do that, and they, they were mad at him about that. Um, gosh. Isn't that – so are you, are, you, are you moving on from the racism now? Yeah, I'll move on from the racism. Oh, I, but I wanted to say – so this is one area in which you, you, you're sort of conflicted about efforts to, like, expunge him from, from the public record on, like, school campuses and whatnot because you, you hate him. <laughs> and he was racist, but this is still, like, a sort of worrying attitude to just completely erase our past. Yeah, I mean, I, I, whether or not we should be – you know, whether or not, you know, Princeton should rename the Woodrow Wilson School – that's one of – for me, that's kind of like an Iran-Iraq war fight. You know, I mean, <laughs> like either side has its – you know, it, their benefits to whoever wins that fight. But um, uh, Wilson lamented that the South lost the Civil War. Uh, screen birth of a nation. Screen birth of a nation, um, which probably gets too much hype, but it is usefully symbolic. Um, he uh, – since I think it has like a <laughs> – I think birth of a nation might have like a really high Rotten Tomatoes score. Well, Birth of the Nation was was a brilliant movie. Um, we talked about this recently on one of these podcasts about how my problem with, like... so uh, Yeah, because you got mad at me when I mentioned the Beatles, so I won't do that. But, like, with um, Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Citizen Kane invented all sorts of stuff that we now take for granted, so you don't see why it's brilliant, because it actually just seems modern and normal. Birth of the Nation invented all sorts of stuff, or introduced all sorts of stuff into film. And was you know, And any historian of film will tell you... That the content is evil or bad, but the, the the technique is brilliant. So similar things are said about Triumph of the Will. Yeah, no, exactly. Right, you can you can respect it as filmmaking, um, but um, also Birth of the Nation. You know, one of the funny things, one of the weird, funny historical oddities is you know the second clan. The first clan was the one that was around during Reconstruction and all that, and truly horrible and evil and all that kind of stuff. The second clan was. Sort of, uh, it was it was sort of like a cosplay um, cult that was created by the movie Birth of a Nation, and became very popular very quickly, and became kind of the Milton wing of the Democratic Party. The Klan almost bought Valparaiso Law School at one point. Um, it was really big in Indiana. I think, yeah, I think the the governor of Indiana was in the Klan at one point. There were lots of people who were in the Klan. The 1924 Democratic Convention was called the Klan Bake because it was his name McAdoo McAdoo who was, I think, on the vice presidential, um, was like a grand wizard. I, mean, I could be messing that up, but there's something like that. Anyway, back to Wilson, if, we're gonna, if I'm going to get this rant done. Yeah, um, go ahead. It was Robert Nisbet, who's the one who first pointed out, uh, to me at least, that um, uh, in a wonderful book that doesn't get the credit it deserves called The Present Age, that um, the f- first modern implementation of totalitarian... Um, uh, propaganda ministry and techniques was in the United States of America under Woodrow Wilson. The Committee for Public Information was the first modern propaganda ministry in Western civilization. It employed, someone will correct me on the numbers, but thousands of what they called four-minute four minute men who were these propaganda agents who would sort of pre-Google influencers, right, who would go into hotel lobbies, crowds, carnivals, you know, whatever, and Dinner parties they weren't invited to. That kind of thing. <laughs> Impromptu speeches in support of the president, in support of, of, of punishing the, the, the mongrel Huns, all of this kind of stuff. And 
the Wilson administration also supported and had this sort of hybrid relationship with something called the American Protective League, which no one talks about anymore, which at its height had about 250,000 members. They were basically fascisti. They were, you know, they were goons who... Uh, squadristi. Squadristi are fascisti, but not all fascisti are squadristi. So, yeah, they were squadristi is a better way to put it. <laughs> and they were, they beat up protesters. They helped do interrogations. They worked hand in glove with... Uh, law enforcement at times. Uh, they were street goons and thugs and ideological enforcers for the state. And it was Wilson, and this this may seem like an own the libs thing to say, but it is, I mean, it is the historical record. Wilson was the one who imprisoned Eugene V. Debs and then Warren G. Harding released him. That's right. There were about, I think it was, I think it was about 6,000 political prisoners who were um, uh, thrown in jail. Um, you had one guy who made a documentary that portrayed the British as the villains in the American Revolution was sent to jail for, I think, six months. How you do a documentary about the American Revolution without portraying the British as the villains and still be a patriotic American is hard for me to fathom. <laughs> There's another guy who I believe was, went to jail um, because he said that uh, Vladimir Lenin was the brainiest guy in the world um, in a private conversation that someone turned him in for. You had several cases where people who refused to stand for the national anthem or the Star-Spangled Banner at sporting events um, were beaten to death by the crowds or shot, and the people who were uh, arrested for it were either uh, either the charges were dropped or juries refused to convict them for it. So Wilson unleashed this mass hysteria across the country, and then you have his economic stuff. He We get... Um, almost all of the corporatist institutions that get instantiated by the New Deal have their origins in Woodrow Wilson's War Socialism. Uh, you have, uh, um, you know, basically what what Woodrow what, what FDR did, and people forget FDR was a Wilson administration retread. He basically took all of these institutions from uh, that were that were designed to sort of meld industry and government together so that they worked synergistically, and he brought them back. And I have a list I can you know, put on the website of all the government agencies that have their roots in Wilson's War Socialism. And, and FDR had campaigned saying that he was going to take the techniques that we used to fight the war and use them to fight the Great Depression. And it was this triumph of the sort of moral equivalent of war thinking about how to organize an economy. He also created the income tax, which has nothing to do with any of anything else, but it just, I don't like it. He, or he's put it into effect. He, where else can we go with this? Oh, his speech about hyphenated Americans was grotesque. The The way they treated Germans, uh, German Americans in this country was horrific. They basically erased a culture and a language in this country. They banned the teaching of German. They banned the speaking of German in public places. Uh, where? Sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. All that stuff. Um you had um, – I feel like I'm forgetting an important one. Um, what else? Um, we did the American Protective League. We did the um, Jim Crow stuff. Uh, he loved he loved Lincoln's techniques, but he hated his ends, which is the exact opposite position of an enlightened person about Abraham Lincoln. You're supposed to lament that he had to use dictatorial powers to do something righteous. Wilson hated that he was doing something righteous, but he loved the dictatorial powers. Uh, <laughs> He resurrected the modern state of the Union, right? Because it, right. it had not been like one of – in the – I've read one of Lincoln's states of the Union and it's just almost literally that, like saying the balance of payments is, right. the, is, is <laughs> X dollars. Uh, oh, yeah. that's it. Um, and, and Steve Hayward would leave a burning bag of 
dog crap on my front porch if I had forgotten to mention this. He's the first president to openly denigrate the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, he says they're all outdated. He says that we need to replace the Constitution with a living Constitution that is not Newtonian but Darwinian that grows and breathes and and basically does whatever I want it to do. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it grows in the direction of of my preferences. Wow! Yeah, look at that. And um, and that that's sort of I think that's the point that Walter McDougall makes about Wilson is that the way to understand Wilson is that he was a craven voluptuary of power, and whatever argument would expand his power, that was the argument that he found persuasive. Um, yeah, because when he was a PhD back in the eighteen eighties, he was arguing that congress should be the proper locus or the speaker of the house even right. specifically should be the and he was right about that yeah <laughs> but um or he was more right than wrong um about that well and, and that was an era when presidents were weak yeah so he was like oh it must be congress right then he then he moves around and um david Piatruza, um a great really easy to read um historian who wrote a wonderful book for political junkies called 1920, the year of six presidents. He makes this, uh, he opens either the book or the chapter about Wilson talking about how um, Colonel House, who was sort of, you know, Wilson's Carl Rove, no offense to Carl, said, if you want to get good, getting good with Wilson, the way you do it is uh, find a common hatred. And that Good advice for yeah. making friends. Yeah, and that was the only you could. Flattery didn't do it. It was like if Wilson hated somebody, you went, you sidled up to him and said you hated him too, and gave him a new reason to hate him. And so he was a hater. And so the thing that that if I have you know there are things I would do differently if I rewrote liberal fascism today. But one of the things that the the thing I have the most esprit de scalier feeling that's that feeling of I should have said something, should have done something is I don't actually talk about in the book. FDR's 1944 State of the Union Address, which is the one where he calls for an economic bill of rights. And so in it, you really see this this twisting of the language that reflects how so many people on the left think of fascism, right? He says, and we can put a link up to it on the home, on the show in the show notes. He says that if we give in to the forces of, quote-unquote, normalcy that took hold here in the 1920s, we will be surrendering to the very fascism we're fighting abroad, right? So you had Woodrow Wilson, creates a propaganda ministry, unleashes goon squads, <laughs> um, uh, shuts down—I didn't even get into his censorship—shuts down newspapers all over the country, uses the, the franking privilege to silence dissent, throws political prisoners in jail, uh, declares war on— Anybody who is not fully on board with his war aims and who carries a hy- – he says anyone who has a hyphen in their name, meaning like a German-American or an Italian-American, he literally says has a dagger at the heart of this country. Um, he you know, was a theocrat. He was uh, in every way fits a checklist of what the conventional person thinks a fascist looks like, right? And then the Republicans come in and they release the political prisoners and they deregulate the economy. They bring us peace and prosperity for a long time, not long enough, alas. And Wilson and, and FDR says that if we go back to that, we'll be uh, Im- imposing fascism on our country, right? Not if we go back to the crap that, that FDR did at the beginning of the New Deal where he tried to militarize the economy, um, 
through the Blue Eagle and the NRA and all that kind of stuff. That's not fascism. What's fascism is actually like Calvin Coolidge letting people do what they want and make money and keep their tax dollars as best they can. That's fascism. And that that rhetorical switch has taken root, for, and there are plenty of other reasons to it. The fact that so many Western intellectuals were useful idiots for communism is a much bigger part of the story. But there's an American component to that that propagandistic treatment of free market liberal democratic capitalism as being fascistic that comes not out of Bolshevik propaganda, but comes out of um, American progressivism. And it's disgusting. Um, so was that enough of a Wilson rant? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's up to the listeners. But I, yeah, yeah I, I, you probably could have mentioned eugenics a little more. But that's not a specifically. Oh, yeah, there's a eugenics thing, too. But that's not specifically Wilson. No, no. That's, that's of the time. Yeah. Right. Um, what else? Uh, what are you going to do for Christmas? You going home in a while? Yes. Um, Somebody asked me that, or are you just asking me that? I'm just curious. Well, I'm trying to figure out what to talk about next, you know. Um, I don't. Someone on this list wants me to talk about Radio Free Europe. Um, I need to know more. I mean, I'm. I'm very. REM is best. I'm kidding. I actually don't know their discography well enough to know if that's true. I am um, very much in favor of the Voice of America stuff and the Radio Free Europe stuff. Um, I used to know a lot more about it. My um, old boss Ben Wattenberg was on the board, and I used to be pretty involved in that stuff. And I had people. I knew people who worked there, but I haven't followed it. This reader says that it's. In trouble. I need to look into it. I don't want to comment. I don't want to, you know, pull an Emerald Robinson and just make stuff up. Please rant about why we need adult seatbelt laws. I can't rant about that. I don't. What I don't even know what that is referring to. Um, I don't know either. Um, this person says you joke about the classic book tour question. What is your book about? And I can't tell whether you like or dislike that question. Yeah, let me. I can answer that question. Here's uh-huh. my answer. I think you're doing. I think you do that to people because you. It's your revenge for getting asked it so many times on your book tour, and you just want to inflict it on others as well. No, that's not it at all. I actually oh. like the question. I think it's well. A- then why is it that you always laugh when you ask it, as though you're about to inflict torture on someone? Oh, I don't know if you laugh when you're about to torture someone. I'm just speculating. It, it's very context dependent where I laugh when I torture someone. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, no, maybe I just maybe my setup for that question is stupid, but I generally appreciate the question, right? Because too often what you get. Is people trying to take the news of the day? Oh, okay. And say, you know, I mean, I did a Fox News hit where someone asked me to weave in the themes of a book that starts two hundred fifty thousand years ago into some of Kanye West's tweets. Yeah, because you, you, Suicide West came out right when Kanye was getting red pilled. Right, right, and uh, that was annoying. Um, Oh, this person asks, how about the stupidity of the term people of color? Who belongs to this group? Um, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I think just it's sort of a as a useful way of discussing concepts and stuff. There, it's understandable that we would come up with some term for non-white people in a majority white country where there are lots of different kinds of non-white people, and I can understand why just as sort of a shortcut linguistically you would come up with something like that. On the other hand, I find it kind of grotesque, you know, because first of all, if you try to explain to a Martian, right, why in 1962 colored people was emblematic of 
uh, institutional racism and bigotry, right? You know, colored water fountains and white people water fountains and all that kind of stuff. And then in 2018, why calling people people of color, which is just linguistically a more convoluted way of saying the exact same thing is what the sort of woke, enlightened person is supposed to say. It's kind of, at the minimum, it's ironic, right? And so, Wait, wait, we don't know if Martians have a concept of irony. That's true. Or color. They could be colorblind. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah. Um, be awesome if, like, they came, if, if some alien race came and all of their notions of bigotry were invested in things like height. <laughs> um, or smell. Or smell. Or some weird arbitrary thing that we just don't, you know. Uh, I was going to say there was a Star Trek episode about that, but that was kind of, they were they were pretty blatant in that one episode that the Riddler is in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where um, they, they, they it's, it's just colored, too. It's just that they're both, like... They're they're white and black, and they ju- they only look at the like one half of them, right? Is that how that right. episode goes? No, what goes? it was was, and I should remember the title of the show because I've written about it a bunch of times. But um, it was a race where the majority pop or the the in power population of the race had the blacks the the right side of their face was black. And the left side of their face was white, or vice versa, right? The whole point is it's supposed to not matter. Yeah. And then the downtrodden, persecuted minority had it the other way around, right? So so when they show up on the bridge and they're still fighting each other, you know, the I think Kirk or somebody says, what's the big – why you guys hate each other? You look identical or you look alike. And, he says, and they're like, what, are you kidding me? He has black on the right side of his face, and I have black on the left side of my face, and that's all the difference in the world. And it's always a very, very didactic. Yeah, not not even like barely trying to be clever. Yeah, yeah, and um, about how bigotry is arbitrary and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, um, I don't know why this came to mind. Well, oh, oh because I brought up Martians. That's why. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, no. so no. What I was about to say is. Uh, uh, I did a corner post years ago, I think after someone announced that NASA was going to have some big announcement about finding extraterrestrial, you know, uh, molecular life or signs of life or something like that. Yeah. And I did a corner post previewing what the announcement was going to be. And it was this tongue in cheek thing about how it's um, that we've actually made content contact with intelligent extraterrestrial life from an advanced civilization and it turns out that this advanced civilization is populated entirely by orthodox jews <laughs> and um and how all of a sudden all sorts of people are changing their tunes about their attitudes towards jews and in israel and um i actually think it would be a great subject for like a short story because of how you know the nature of how power corrupts people and how if if Jews had more power, fewer people would feel as free as they are to say terrible things about them. But anyway, the reason I bring it up is that Charles Krauthammer loved that post and brought it up with me for years afterwards about how much, how hilarious he thought it was. And it was a great source of pride of mine that I, that was one of my continuing goals was just making Charles Krauthammer laugh. That's what I, um, you know, and that, that was the only thing my mom would ever congratulate me for when I was on special report is if if I got Charles to laugh and the camera swung to him and showed him laughing. Um, but that's what they call a non sequitur. Um, Speaking of non sequiturs. 
<laughs> I don't know. Say whatever you want. Um, uh, what else do we have here? Uh, spaniels who can't resist mud puddles. Um, I witnessed this. I, I I saw it firsthand. It's it's something to behold. I just I don't know what the biological drive there is, but she just loves water and mud and like trying to get herself more wet. It's yeah. great. No, um, uh, we'll put a couple links in the show notes to recent videos of uh, the spaniel Pippa just going nuts in these these mud puddles because we've had an insane amount of rain in Washington in the last month, and so so many liberal tears and. Um, and the one thing that does annoy me is that people on Twitter accuse me all the time of throwing the tennis ball into the mud puddle for the benefit of the video. <laughs> and as I think you can attest, I don't need to seduce Pippa into a mud puddle. Yeah, the 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 one time I was I saw this happen, I didn't even she took it into the puddle with her. Yeah, she drops it in the puddle and then she kind of like does this Weird thing where she's kind of like trying to pick it up or bury it. It's not clear. And then she yells at me about how I'm supposed to get it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just a funny thing to watch. It is. It is. It's not a fun thing to deal with afterward. No. Although her fur does take pretty well to the hose. Um, you can get the worst of it out of there. All right. Well, I can't think of anything. Can you think? Were the, what were the other things that we agreed that we should talk about? Um, oh, I'll, uh, here's one thing. Uh, just a little rank punditry on this. So I, my LA Times column is up today. It'll be my syndicated column by the time this comes out. I am so friggin' tired of hearing people. So, like, let me do it this way. One of the key distinctions of a civilization, of a family, of parenting, politics, of life, is the difference between an excuse and an explanation, right? When Johnny Cash shoots a guy in Reno just to see him die, that's an explanation. It's not an excuse. If you find your toddler standing over a wildly overflowing toilet because he put his blanket in there and he explains that he did it just because he wanted to see what it, what would happen, right? That's an explanation. It's not an excuse. It doesn't, you know, but if, if I stab you in the forehead with a ballpoint pen because you were trying to kill me, that's both an explanation and an excuse. And you find this thing that goes on and forget from the sort of, MAGA crowd, you get it from sort of mainstream pundits, including colleagues of mine at National Review, who, when Trump does something weird, crazy, asinine, outlandish, whatever, you get a lot of punditry that says, well, his base will love it, right? This is good for him because his base will love it. And that's an explanation. I'm not even sure it's true. I think Trump does a lot of the things because he's Trump. And his base, he's not doing it to please his base. He's doing it because that's who he is, right? I mean, that's just, that is his nature, is to do some of these things. And because of the sorting mechanism of our politics, his base loves it. But that's not his motivation. His motivation is is, is his lizard brain is just doing what his lizard brain tells him to do. Um, and then they, these after-the-fact rationalizations, like, oh, he's doing it to please his base. I, sometimes that's obviously true. Sometimes it's probably not true. Well, rather a lizard brain man than a than a lizard person. Are you aware of this Alice Walker controversy? I am not. Yeah, she she's a Pulitzer... Oh, is this the acid, the, the anti-Semitic thing? Well, David, uh, Char- Charles Cook writes about this in the corner. Uh, David Ick, I think, mm-hmm. I-C-K-E, Icky maybe? I don't know, it seems like a... Ridiculous way for his name to be pronounced. He is, I mean, he yes, he is anti-Semitic, but that's like the thing he's 
he's he's also a believer that Jews are probably reptilians too. He's one of those people. And uh-huh. Alice Walker, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, recommended one of his books in a New York Times interview. And the New York Times interviewer just kind of was like, "Oh, okay, I'll look into that." Um, and why 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 did she recommend the book? Is it a good book? I mean, I'm, I it, her, she gives a typical like. Uh, uh, Fancy novelist explanation of like of of in a, of it, that has sort of abstruse and abstract and impenetrable justification. But see, if I were interviewing her, I would have known right away what she was up to. But so, this, this New York Times, at the New York Times, they don't know enough about these things. So I feel like I've heard about Ick, Icky before. When did he write his Jews or Reptiles stuff? Uh, he's been around for most of the. He was he's. Alex Jones gets some of his wilder stuff from him. Back when oh, okay. Alex, back before Alex, that explains Jones, why you would know about this. Yeah, yeah. Back before Alex Jones sold out and uh-huh. became just a boring pro-Trump pundit. Uh-huh. Um, back when he was interested in the real stuff. Before before QAnon owned the space of the good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I I totally derailed your rant, which is now my sort of my goal. If you haven't noticed, I have because you want to get out of here. But um, no, no. I, if I wanted to, if I wanted to get out of here, then I wouldn't have interrupted you. So. Uh... Um, and what is Charlie's position on this? Oh, that, uh, like how did Alice Walker not know? What's her excuse for, well, he, 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 the anti-Semitic thing is, is only part of the, of the tapestry of this man's worldview. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, he's way crazier than, than that. Uh-huh. Like, you find anti-Semites who don't also believe that they're reptiles, for example. No, I, I, I agree that, uh, <laughs> There's space in the Venn diagrams for like people who don't think they're lizard people, right? Yes. Yeah. But so is Charles pro this, anti this? Uh, he's, I, I don't know if he's. It, it's sort of an Iran Iraq War thing, I think, uh-huh. like with the, you and the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Okay, I'm still not understanding, but I'll I'll read what Charlie wrote as yeah. and our listeners. Um, but anyway, on this, uh, it's his base loves it thing. It kind of reminds me there was that that story about Adley Stevenson talking to supporters and someone in the crowd says you're the choice of every thinking person in this country and at least stevenson shoots back that's great but i need a majority um this idea that it's smart right for trump to do stuff that pleases his base makes no sense Except, you know, the Matt Bai argument has some sense to it. Matt Bai is a left-leaning guy who he argues that Trump needs to – at this point, Trump needs to hold on to his base to weather the coming storms of congressional investigations and maybe impeachment. And and um, and that is the only way he can keep his approval ratings at least in the low 40s. That's all fine for Trump's personal self-interest in that kind of stuff. But if your aim is to see Trump reelected – or your aim is to see his agenda passed, um, or your aim is to see the Republican Party not shrivel up like dog feces on a hot day and blow away, um, constantly <laughs> saying that fan service is smart is bizarre to me. And you find it all over the place from normally sensible people. And I'm not, and I don't mean just pro-Trump people. You know, I mean, Charlie Cook makes basically this case it's on his brand in the latest episode of the editors matt lewis had this widely read piece on this and as an explanation it's perfectly defensible even if it may not be always correct but you know but donald trump's bay we, we saw in this last midterms we saw an election where what happens when 
people other than wildly pro-Trump people, you know, let me put it this way. We saw what happens when the only people who are inclined to vote Republican are the wildly pro-Trump people. And that's why the Democrats had the biggest uh, midterms in the House since Watergate. For them. For them, right. And you saw the mass defection of people who voted for Trump in 2016, right? I mean, this is the point. is that These are Trump vote. He's losing members of the coalition that brought him to power. And that coalition was a very tight coalition because it was Trump won by 78,000 votes across three states and, so, and didn't win the popular vote. And so the idea that it's smart for Donald Trump to do things that alienate more people than they attract is baffling to me. And it is, it's this, it's this, it seems to me it's one of these things where people sort of, they want to, they want to impose reason on a chaotic, weird thing. And so they smuggle in these rationalizations of irrational behavior and want to find a strategic or coherent theme behind them. But doing stuff that that makes it more difficult to get reelected or makes it more difficult for the Republican Party to succeed in achieving things that Trump allegedly wants is not smart politics. And whenever I point this out, oh, you don't get it. You know, you get all of this sort of like, that's exactly what you neocon warmongering cucks might say. And I was like, well, no, it's just like, it just seems like friggin' obvious common sense. And I haven't, I haven't seen a single argument other than the Matt Bai one that is all about Trump's personal needs and requirements. I haven't seen a single argument that says this is good for the GOP. It is good for the MAGA agenda. It is good for conservatism. But you find time and time again people smuggling in, well, you know, this will be good for Trump because this is what his base likes. His base already likes him. Why wouldn't he do stuff that might attract more people to his coalition? And whenever you ask that question, you just get this sort of, you know, you know, the same look I would give my... um. I would get from my basset hound when I try to feed it a grape, you know, this sort of cold, unblinking incomprehension about how, like, I just, you know, why would you even ask that question? It's bizarre to me. That's totally a remnant bingo item. Yes. The, the basset hound grape so, stare. You know, I do a little fan service, too. You know, I'm not <laughs> immune to it. I just try to keep it in perspective. Um, so have you seen, I, I, we'll talk about it with, with Sonny Bunch, but have you seen Into the Spider-Verse? I'm going to tomorrow. Okay. I will save my thoughts on it, but... Um, I think it's great. I think it's legitimate. There are places where it goes a little, I get a little nervous that it's making too much fun of itself, but then it pulls itself back. But I thought it was... Just like this podcast. It was great. It's very apt and well put. (laughs) Um, Okay, so what else is there? Um, You're going to Ohio. I leave on Friday for Park City, Utah, where I'm going to be there for a few days staying with family and um, on my wife's side and then we're going to Hawaii and we're staying with other family and um, I'm very much looking forward to it. I wish I could take more time off from column writing but I don't know if I can but that's why we're going to get one more of these podcasts into the hopper. I want to thank everybody who on the road um, came out for all of these events. I'm, you know, They were great events. I'm so glad they're over but they were great events. Um, 
large numbers of people brought me um, cigar and scotch, which I greatly appreciate um, and will always appreciate. Uh, and uh, is there anything else that we have action items for? Uh, I can't think of anything, although there is something I want to mention. Okay. Um, I'm As part of my growing fame, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. as, as a result of being on this podcast, someone who uh, I tried to live with when I first moved here, uh-huh. but was not interested in living with me for reasons you can understand. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, just te- uh, messaged me uh, saying that he wishes that we ha- that he ha- had lived with me and that he's enjoyed listening to me on the remnant. And what was your response? Uh, I, I was not I was not bitter. I was magnanimous. Uh-huh. I am I am the magnanimous man from Greek philosophy. So so this person just didn't want you as a roommate. Yeah. What were his reasons? Oh, I, I, I can come up with my own. You know, I, I'm, I, it, it's, it was years ago. I, I, it seemed, it would seem petty to inquire, and I don't really care. Okay, but he was uh, another Hillsdale guy. No, not a Hillsdale person. Interesting. Remember the Ohio Mafia? Nope, not Ohio either. Interesting. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out how you know this guy. But okay, it's, I, not, I mean, it's not really my business. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to answer these questions anyway because this, this is not someone I want my my. <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't think I have like a substandard fan base that I can just sick on people. But I wouldn't. If I did, I wouldn't want to sick them on him anyway. Right. So, oh, speaking of the substandard, um, it is now the sub beacon, mm-hmm. uh, which makes slightly less sense than before. But whatever. Yes, because the the phrase substandard predated the podcast. My wife has been calling it uh, the substandard since nineteen ninety. We've been calling it the weekly standard. The substandard. It was sort of an in-house joke that they picked up and turned into the name of a podcast. But it pre- the phrase substandard as a joke about the Weekly Standard predated the podcast by decades, or at least a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, one piece of exciting one, – one thing to look forward to. In uh, 2019, my wife, the fair Jessica, is committed to coming on this podcast. And um, uh, you'll be able to – hear her euphonious, dulcet tones, and um, we can ask her all of the wonderful questions about how awesome it is to be married to me. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so I'm looking forward to that. If you have questions, tasteful questions, uh, <laughs> um, you can feel free to send them in. Oh, other exciting news. We sold the Italian language rights to Suicide of the West. Ooh, do you know what the what's the title in Italian? Do you I don't know? know yet. I don't know. And oh, um, is it going to be just a translation, or are you going to alter it slightly? Well, they. I find this fascinating, and I'm not quite sure I believe it, but they requested to take out the chapter on Locke and Rousseau because they claimed that it was sort of remedial for Italian readers that they knew all that stuff. Oh, and hmm, okay. I suspect there's something else going on there, but. I honestly don't really care, you know. Um, I don't. If it's more likely to catch on in Italy without that chapter, that's fine by me. I mean, they're they're not making me rewrite anything, say things I don't believe, or anything like that. Maybe they just wanted it out for for space reasons, or because there are much more different views of Locke and Rousseau in Italy. I don't know. Um, Does liberal fascism have an Italian edition? No. So liberal fascism mm, is in. I lost count. Um, it's in Polish, which is not surprising. Yeah, so they no, lived the thesis pretty. I'm, I'm dis- not sure it's in double digit languages, but it is. I know it is in Russian, 
Romanian, or, or Hungarian, uh, Polish. I think there's a Serbo-Croatian one. There's a Turkish one. Uh, but there is no German or Italian version. Hmm. Um, Japanese I think, version? I think Korean. I think there's okay. a Korean one. I'm not sure about Japanese. Uh, there's a Portuguese version. Uh, but Brazilian Portuguese, not Portugal Portuguese. I don't really know the distinctions there. Uh, Nor do I. And uh, uh, I know it sells really well, or at least it did for years, in in Hungary, in Budapest. There is a museum of terror, all about the about communism, and uh, and it's basically like a glorified gift shop, is my understanding. And in liberal fascism for years, people who had either relatives or when they themselves went to Hungary on vacations or trips and they stopped in there, they would take pictures of it and send it to me and there was a big display in the center of the room. Nice. So there's a so there's a museum of terror in, in Budapest? Yeah. There's all, there's, I think that's what it's called. There's a museum of torture in Spain. Yes. Uh, there's a museum of animal phalli in Iceland, I think. Animal phalli? Is that what I think you said? Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it there. Um, I just, I, you could probably make an interesting tour of like the weirdest museums yeah, across so the world. There is a, I believe it's still there, but there was a Liberace Museum in Vegas. Oh, and, yeah. Um, well, I mean, Vegas itself is basically a Liberace Museum. Yeah. And so <laughs> my mom used to tell the story about how she and a bunch of her friends were uh, a mix of uh, really snarky gay dudes and British journalists were there for some reason, and when the docent taking them on the tour showed them the world's largest rhinestone, the entire group fell apart laughing. <laughs> but um, I think there's also a Bigfoot museum somewhere in Maine. Ah, uh, so it comes full circle. Yeah. Um, um, but before we go completely full circle, uh, asking you about what the title in Italian of Suicide of the West might be reminded me why... The reason I asked that is that when movies in America are released abroad, uh, sometimes the title, the translation of the titles into the native language, if you take it back into English, is just weird. really, <laughs> really weird. And I found a list of uh, some of them uh, that I think is worth, I'll read some of them. Uh, Boogie Nights, which I think is now on Netflix, FYI. Uh, Speaking of animal phalli. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. In China, the, the translation of the title back into English is, His Great Device Makes Him Famous. <laughs> which, Yeah. Technically true. Uh, Greece in Argentina, the, the title translates back into Vaseline. Interesting. <laughs> uh, being John Malkovich in Japan, the title translates back into The Whole of Malkovich, which is sort of what the movie yeah. is about, but it's kind of, yeah, yeah it's weird. And I, I find this hard to believe, but if it's true, then this is amazing. In The Matrix in France, the title translates back into The Young People Who Traverse Dimensions While Wearing Sunglasses, <laughs> which they're not all that young, actually. Um, so it's funny. So there's, there's also like, there are lists about this kind of thing with cars, you know, like the Chevy Nova in, in Spanish language countries, Nova means no go. Um, <laughs> and you know, Citroen means lemon, you know, in English. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, so when I was living in Prague, uh, in Czech, Skoda is pity, but in Russian, Skoda was this, there was a car called um, the Skoda, right? And which was common all across Eastern Europe. And we would make all sorts of stupid jokes where, because people would always say, the Czechs, when they like busted in blackjack at the casinos where I spent an inordinate amount of time, they would say Skoda, right? When they drew the wrong card. Yeah. Right? And so we would, because we were wise-ass 20-somethings, we would say things like, 
ah, uh, Jeep Trans Cher- Grand Cherokee or you know, <laughs> Trans Am. But uh, I had a friend. Let's see if she's. Let's see. Uh, uh, Are you sending a ping out into the? Yeah, I want to. I want to see if I hear back. Uh, friend who worked for AEI a long time ago. Lovely, lovely girl, Leanne Yingling. Oh, you're gonna name her? Yeah. So now we'll see who, you know, how many degrees of separation it takes to get an email back saying I, you know, you I heard you mentioned me on your podcast. Uh, she uh, she told me this great story about how she lived like in I think it was Costa Rica for a year, and she used to go to the a mo- the the movies, and she liked to watch the 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 Spanish translations and the subtitles. Um, and see how they try to translate things. And so she saw um, Wayne's World. <laughs> and um, there's a scene where Wayne says, Chia, and when pigs fly out of my butt. And the translation in Spanish, what, Spanish was, yes, when judgment day comes. <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, it loses some of the context. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, the, the last one of these I'll read. The German title of Annie Hall, translated back into English, is Urban Neurotic, which is a pretty good summary of that Too on movie. the nose. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. Well, a typical German. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what is this? <laughs> Urban Neurotic. Um, Patton Oswalt has this great shtick about how, we talked about this on Glop once. About, you and Patton Oswalt? No, but uh, uh, me and Rob Long um, and, and Pod, about how Patton Oswalt was on a tour in Germany. And the Germans were taking him around, and and he never encountered people who were more determined to step on every joke and ruin it. <laughs> and um, so, like, they go to this big concert hall, and they have like thousands of like little red lights dancing around the outside, you know, sort of like um, an a light show kind of thing around the building. And Patton Oswalt says, "Oh, that must be from all the snipers, or something like that." And the German with him says, "Oh no." I'll, Oh no, Mr. Oswald, that is that is merely a theatrical light display. There are no there are no snipers. I can assure you, there are no snipers. And there's another scene, another part where he's like, sees some giant weird tube coming in, and he's like, oh, that must be like where the um, the the dough comes in for the Willy Wonka thing. And the German's like, oh no, oh no, Mr. Oswald, I can't do a German accent. I can't do any accent. Uh, this is this is purely an ornamental architectural design left over from a factory. It means nothing. And you know, not, there's no Willy Wonka thing. And 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 Oswald's theory was it's it's the Holocaust. These guys have lost any right to have any kind of freaking sense of humor about anything. But <laughs> the Holocaust. But um, wasn't the world's deadliest joke uh, translated out of German found during World War II? Yes, that's one of my favorite Monty Python skits. Yeah, right where uh, uh, they discovered the world's funniest joke. It. Is so funny you die laughing. So they they translate it word for word for word, but in stages so that no one dies translating it into German. And then they just have troops walking through the German woods reading the joke, out loud, <laughs> and the Germans just rain down from trees, dying from laughing. <laughs> um, all right, so that was discursive. Yeah, we're truly rambling at this yeah. point. All right, so. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, please keep the reviews coming. We are inching up on 3,000 reviews on iTunes. Also, the Jonah Remnant bot has almost 6,000 followers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and uh, uh, if you could subscribe on on iTunes, Google Play, whatever, that's better for us. If you listen to it at National Review, that's great. If you want to be a member of NanR Plus, you can get all the archives and all of that. That's great, too. But I personally, if I were you... and 
if you were motivated to help us out, I would not only subscribe on iTunes, I would subscribe on every single conceivable platform for these things. <laughs> and uh, Just get a phone that's dedicated entirely to having po- storing podcasts on it so you can handle this. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, listen to it. Like, when, after you listen to it, delete it and then re-download it. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that's a sort of a crucial thing to do. Um, and don't forget uh, to send um, hi- your suggestions for our highlight reel either to the Twitter account or to the podcast email. Do you remember what it is? At, uh, jo- remnantpod at gmail.com. The remnantpod. The remnantpod at gmail.com. Yeah, so please. If we get enough, we'll actually do one. Yeah, we'll actually make – Jack will actually collect the audio and we'll actually kind of do a cool, I don't know, Scooby-Doo or Dream Sequence thing where we go back and – and pick up on some of these things. And I promise, I know I keep teasing this, but I promise in the new year we're going to try to up the frequency and the weirdness of this podcast. And so anybody who has any ideas about goofy, interesting, quirky, oddball, cranky, uh, goofy, dopey, sleepy, bashful uh, (laughs) ideas for this podcast, we want them. And... um, Snow White leaves out Druggy, the other the other dwarf. Yeah, uh, dope sick was also left. Dope sick, <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, and we're we're working on the ability for me to do more. Po- you know, I did that podcast with Charlie Cook on the cruise ship with this doohickey that I lost, but we're getting another one. I'm replacing the one for AI, and um, so I can do more of these things on the road too, uh, which I think will be great for upping the frequency and getting cool people um but or uncool people or uncool people like uh, let's let's be honest <laughs> there have been a number of uncool people on this podcast don't, don't name no, names. No, 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 <laughs> names you know um but i think we couldn't even name some names and those people wouldn't take offense because they recognize that they are not necessarily the coolest people in the world still you're don't resist resist but, the temptation I, I agree i agree um all right, I meant to talk about the Big Bang Theory post, but we'll just have to leave it hanging there. Thanks, everybody, for well, listening. Well, you can bring that up on the pop culture. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so thanks, everybody. Uh, have a if, – if, if you don't miss – well, I don't have to wish you a Merry Christmas quite yet because we're going to have one more. It's a week away. It is a week away, and I haven't Disturbing. done much, much of my shopping. But everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Your support actually does mean a lot as, as everything turns to hot garbage around me um, and as a lot of – bad crap is happening in the world the fact that there are people who appreciate this podcast actually does mean a lot to me i you know if 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 jack had human emotions it would mean a lot to him too um and uh so thank you very much and uh uh, and i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast like doing something different. That's fine. I already broke into the German accent. It was gold. It was gold.